Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption, a family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence, a family that has to confront the past and the present and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is part one, Ashes and Lap Dances. Joe Henry is dead. In his prime, he was a tall man, fat around the middle, with a red beard. He had a smile like a pirate. Now his ashes are stored in a garage in Portland, Oregon, zipped up in a plastic bag, sealed inside a cheap wooden box. He lives for 68 years, which in the age of the Pony Express and the steam engine would have seemed like a good long time. But now, with our modern medicine and cutting-edge technology, seems like a jip. Joe was born in Ohio and died in Oregon. He spent most of his life in New York City. He was a soldier in the Army during the Korean War, though he never fired a shot. At different times in his life, he was a copywriter, an industrial filmmaker, and a salesman. And for the last seven years of his life, he was a very sick man. He had what the literature refers to as multiple organ failure, heart, liver, kidneys. Because of this, he went to dialysis three times a week for four hours a day. There, they literally drained the blood from his body, stripped out the toxins, and fed it back to him. What a thing to watch. Your own blood flowing out of your body into a machine. The sight of it, hot and red, draining from your arm through a clear, shallow tube. Does the machine suck it out? Or is there a discomforting feeling of evacuation, of your blood rushing out, escaping? It is like something fundamental about you is being rewired right before your eyes. How many days did he sit there wondering, am I still me without my blood, without the impurities they strip out? Joe died with a huge zipper scar running from his clavicle to his belly. This is where the heart surgeons opened his chest and spread his ribs. He had smaller scars on his arms and legs where veins had been extracted and arteries bypassed. There was a shunt in his right arm, taped closed, and a strange subterranean bulge in the suicide vein of his right wrist, tubes lurking just under the surface. His teeth floated in a glass by the bed. A mess, in other words. He was a mess. He had never been a particularly healthy person. He smoked and drank. He never exercised, never went to the doctor. At 61, his heart, liver, and kidneys faltered. Over the course of the next seven years, he went from hospital to nursing home, losing body mass, folding inward. He contracted liver cancer, a tumor the size of a walnut that was removed by surgeons with a glowing poker. But still, he kept going. Then he was diagnosed with lung cancer, which, if you think about it, leads you to one of two conclusions. Either A, there is no God, or B, God must have really, really wanted Joe Henry dead. Joe Henry must have owed God money, or slept with his sister or something. Because say what you want about heart failure, liver failure, and kidney failure, lung cancer is a motherfucker. Which is why, just three months later, Joe Henry died, restless and mumbling fitfully in his nursing home bed. Now he's what you might call a passive character. The sum total he can contribute to the world is this. Zero. 
By coincidence, zero is also the current level of confidence Joe's son Scott has in the girl he's been dating since his father's death. As our story begins, Scott is drunk and seated in the VIP area of a San Francisco strip club. He's watching a woman in a thong give a lap dance to Kate, the girl he's dated for the last two months. The two of them are in the club as part of a foursome, though in truth it is more of a threesome with Scott just along for the ride. It is the end of a long night of drama and humiliation. Certain truths have come to light, details of Kate's extracurricular activities, unflattering information about her character. And Scott is exhausted, emotionally, physically. He's beginning to think he isn't in Kansas anymore, by which he means he is off the map, has sailed past all known landmasses over the lip of the page, past the signs that read, There be dragons here. It is all blackness now, and fog. He orders another tequila, another beer, and watches as the man who brought them here, a 53-year-old captain of industry, negotiates a price with a blonde, top-heavy stripper. Scott watches as the captain takes his girlfriend's hand and retreats with the stripper to a back room for a private session, which Kate tells him will involve actual penetration. Kate and the captain and his girlfriend come to this place often, it turns out. The VIP area is smoky, filled with the thundering confusion of electronic beats. It is two o'clock in the morning. They've already been to two gallery openings and a party. Kate leans over and tells Scott that the last time she was here with the captain and his girlfriend, she made $300 lap dancing for strangers. She says it with a smile on her face, pride in her voice. She is hot, the way a knife is hot when you hold it over a fire then press the blade against an open wound. When she looks at Scott, he feels like an egg cooking on the sidewalk. His dad has been dead for 12 weeks. All he wants is to be loved like a puppy. Instead, he is locked in some kind of twisted dating death match. He feels dizzy, a hot electric coil in his stomach frying up his guts. No one ever told him there was so much sadness in the world. It is a smothering syrup that coats the land and sea, a cherry red sludge you can't escape. The catch is, you can't see it all the time. When things are good, when the world is normal, the varnish of sadness is almost invisible. But then when you least expect it, like an egg, the world cracks open and sadness coats your hair, your clothes. It comes in the mail. It seeps into every electronic transaction, a binary sadness of ones and zeros. It pours out of the faucet when you brush your teeth, fills the air like pollen, reddening your eyes, making your nose run. Right now what fills the air is the smell of pineapple and coconut, artificial, cloying. It's the smell of cheap perfume the strippers carry in their boxy purses, like little cans of mace. Food. They smell like food. Seven hours from now, after the strip club, after a long cab ride home, after they tumble into bed, and Kate herself smells like food, like coconut and pineapple, like a stripper, he will tell her she has to go, that she's killing him. And right in the middle of his speech, he will break down crying, feeling at once humiliated and liberated, because finally it's all coming out, all the grief and anger, seven years of suffering and regret, Heart failure and liver failure and kidney failure and liver cancer and lung cancer. Jesus Christ. Death. He will be crying because of death. I just want to be happy, 
he'll say pathetically. And she will hold him like she cares, stroking his hair, whispering soothing words. But she doesn't. It is a lie, a beautiful lie. And he will tell her to get out, will throw her clothes at her, push her out the door, then lie on the bathroom floor, panting, dizzy with booze and loss. In case you haven't figured it out by now, this is not going to be a love story about Scott and Kate. The truth is, she's just another in a long series of crazy ladies, narcissists. Same bullet, he will say later, different gun. She's like a shirt you keep trying on because it looks great on the rack. But on you, it is misshapen, hideous. The colors are not your colors. The cut makes you look ridiculous. But you can't walk away from it. Can't stop trying it on. Because in your mind you think, this shirt is so cool. It is a shirt that looks profoundly stylish on a shaved-headed Italian soccer player modeling in a Dolce & Gabbana ad. And looking at it, you think it should look good on you, too. But it doesn't. On you, it looks like a clown costume. It is the same with these women. They are the perfect girls, yes, but for someone else. Scott sits in a dark, humid strip club, watching as a topless Asian dancer presses her tits against Kate's face, as she spreads Kate's legs and rubs her naked thighs against Kate's denim-clad groin. Seeing this, Scott closes his eyes, and for one overwhelming moment thinks, I miss my dad. I miss my dad. Or maybe the story begins here, at 6 a.m. in a house in Portland, Oregon, where Scott's mother, Doris, emerges slowly from her bedroom, checking the hallway for signs of life, moving furtively, sneaking into the kitchen to pour herself another glass of wine before anyone else is up. She's having anxiety attacks these days, experiencing shortness of breath, feelings of panic and hopelessness, her husband of almost 42 years has been dead for three months, and his ashes are locked in a cheap wooden box in her sister-in-law's garage. And the idea of this, the knowledge that all she has to show for four decades of having and holding, loving and obeying, though let's face it, she was never that good at obeying, is a box of human kitty litter. Keeps her up at night, makes her feel like an elephant is sitting on her chest the deep organ certainty that he will never again call her at eight in the morning from his nursing home and tell her his pancakes are cold, will never again kiss her forehead, hold her hand, and call her beauty, makes her want a cigarette, two, six, ten. But because of the emphysema, she isn't supposed to smoke, isn't supposed to light up, close her eyes, and inhale that deep chemical sense of calm. And yet give me a fucking break. If there was a big glass case on the wall with a pack of cigarettes inside and a sign that read, Do not break except in case of emergency, now would absolutely be the time to smash it open. Because if not now, then when? The man is dead, for God's sake. All the information stored in his meaty gray brain has been returned to its original sources. All those memories, all the history books he used to pore over, now may as well have been unread. It is thoughts like these that drive Doris into the kitchen to uncork a bottle of Merlot at six o'clock in the morning. Or maybe the real place to start this story is in Los Angeles, at the home of Doris's other son, David, the eldest, the family man, who on a cold, unforgiving Valentine's Day will break Scott's nose. He is a tall man with sandy brown hair and straight white teeth, 
a sales executive for a major pharmaceutical company. As our story begins, it is 6.30 in the morning, and the kids are awake, running amok. Christopher, 10, and Chloe, 8, and the new baby, Sam. And it is time for brushing and dressing and eating. Time to pack lunches and buckle up. His wife, Tracy, isn't a morning person. And so David rises with the first rustle and herds the kids through their routines. He makes their breakfast, ties their shoes. His days are scheduled down to the millisecond. He has meetings to go to and sales strategy memos to write. His father has been dead for three months. He is stressed out and overwhelmed, but has no time to deal with it, so he tells himself to man up. At this point, with a new baby and a full plate of work, grief is a luxury he can't afford. Since his father died, there hasn't been a single moment to stop and take it in, to cry or scream or punch a hole in the wall. And it doesn't look like there will be a moment in the foreseeable future. So he locks it away and steps into his underwear. Yesterday, his brother Scott called and laid out this long, rambling monologue about some girl who'd broken his heart, the latest in a series of obviously unreliable lunatics, and it was all he could do not to tell him to shut up, not to tell Scott to call back when he had some real problems, kids who need braces or a mortgage that needs paying. David's wife shifts under the covers, murmurs something encouraging like, have a nice day, or I love you. David knots his tie, unravels it, knots it again until the dimple is perfect. This is what he needs, for everything to be perfect, to be just so. But the truth is, David's life isn't perfect, far from it. In fact, he has a secret, a big one. And the secret is this. He has a second wife in New York City. He never meant to have a second wife in New York, or anywhere else for that matter. It just sort of happened. He met a girl on a business trip last winter. Joy. Like, how could you not fall in love with a girl named Joy? And had a fling. And somehow she got pregnant. She wasn't supposed to get pregnant, but she did. And when she told him, he found himself asking her to marry him. Heard the words coming out of his mouth, even as this polite, semi-English-sounding voice piped up in his head and said, Excuse me, sir, but aren't you already married? Like a butler was reminding him of some minor engagement he was late for, instead of the reality, which was, he was already married. He had two kids and a third on the way. He couldn't get married again. There were laws against that kind of thing, not to mention all the moral implications. And yet there he was, proposing. And the next day, he and Joy went to City Hall and stood before a justice of the peace, a foppish man with a comb over. And Joy floated an inch above the floor, beaming, while David swayed on his feet, sweating, tugging at his tie. And now there is a baby boy, also named Sam. He tried to stop her. Sam was coincidentally Joy's father's name. Like, what are the odds? And so in just 12 short months, David has turned into one of those Montel Williams show subjects. Next up on Montel, bigamy! But it's not his fault, he swears. He never meant for any of this to happen. Things just kind of escalated. But that's not even the worst of it. The worst of it is, in three days, his mother and brother are going to arrive carrying a cheap wooden box of ashes. They're going to show up with all their chaos their alcoholism and tragic love disorders, and turn his life upside down for two days. 
And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, the four of them, David, Scott, Doris, and Joe's ashes, will wing to New York City for Joe's memorial service. Big party, historic location, towers of shrimp. After which, if they manage to survive, the four of them, exhausted and cranky, will pile into a rental car and begin the seven-hour drive to Bailey's Island, Maine, where on a rocky winter beach, they will open the box and spread Joe Henry's ashes into the sea. It's enough to make a grown bigamist cry.